Well, as most of you are aware, we have been going through the book of Mark, and we are not in any hurry whatsoever. We've been going pretty slowly. Um, We've made it all the way to chapter 3. And if you were here last week, you realize that um, I actually ran out of time, had more that I wanted to address and deal with, and um, various... I got I got my timing messed up. It was all my fault. But uh, So I had to cut off the last part of what I was planning on looking at. Well, as I went back and, and continued studying, my initial plan had been just tack that on to what I was going to cover this week, and we'll just keep going. Um, but then I started looking at, at that whole section, and I realized, you know what, even that is way more than we would be able to do. And I don't want to plan and set up for failure. I don't want to intentionally not be able to cover everything. Um, Because as we dig into God's Word, we find that there is so much in there that is often just overlooked. We, We speed by it. And, and obviously, we encourage you to spend time every day, read God's Word, spend time with it. Um, there are a variety of reading programs that will take you through the entire Bible in one year. And I, I recommend that. I think that that's very, very valuable to read through or, as I've encouraged at times, listen through the Bible and, and just have that as a constant thing. And yet, there are so many parts that we overlook that we rush past and we don't even notice. Um, I was actually talking to someone uh, this week about the section we're going to cover, and they hadn't fully understood some of the things about the disciples that we're going to be digging into and looking at. And and they were kind of surprised, like, I've read the Bible over and over, but it it just hadn't clicked. And so it's kind of nice to slow down and be able to just uh, dig through. And so that's, that's what we're looking to do. So as a result, if you were here last week and you looked at the section that we were planning on doing, um, this week we are not covering that. Instead, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, 7 through 19, which was the last part of what was last week and the first part of what would have been this week. Um, instead of trying to get a whole bunch of extra stuff, I just cut that off and we're just doing this section. Um, now, last week I had mentioned that that last little bit kind of formed a transition in the book of Mark, which is, is interesting. We're only three chapters in, and already he has completed one idea, and he's transitioning to look at another idea. And yet, if you recall from when we first got started, Mark is a very fast-paced. He keeps going, and he's, he's bringing up all of these examples and these things that are going on, and it's, it's really exciting, and there's a lot of stuff going on. And Mark intends you to get this big-picture, fast-paced, hard-hitting, exciting story as you read through it. That was also why I encouraged you to read the entire thing straight through so that you get the entire overview. But, like I said, it is valuable to then slow down and dig through and look at each verse and and what's going on and what's being said and why is he putting this here and and what's going on. And for the last several weeks, we've been going through the interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees. And we looked at, as they first got started, they were were asking him questions. They would come to him and, and why are you doing this? Why why is that? How, How could you possibly be making this claim that you're forgiving sin when only God can do that? And we started off and realized those were actually reasonable questions. It was good that the religious leaders looked at it and said, hey, something's going on here. This is more than just some new guy who's coming and teaching. This is a big deal. We need to check this out. 
And so they, they asked reasonable questions. But as we went through those five questions that Mark records, we found that their attitudes were not willing to accept the answer. They were not willing to say, you know what? This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. This is the one that we have been looking for. This is God himself. When, when Jesus displayed who he was, they rejected it. And so we went through these five interactions that went from a reasonable question to the point that they decided they wanted to kill him. They wanted to completely and utterly destroy him, get him out of the way, get him off the scene, because this, this is not okay. And all throughout, I've, I've mentioned that Mark is really laying out, this is who Jesus is. Now, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to respond to that? Are you going to accept him as the Messiah, as the promised one, or are you going to reject him? And that first five episodes in which Jesus interacts with the religious leaders, they ultimately said, no, we are not going to accept it. We're going to reject it. We want to destroy him. And so we're getting to this transitional point at which Jesus then turns his attention from this interaction with religious leaders, the one who should have known the scriptures. The scribes, their job was to read the scriptures, to announce it, because not everyone was able to read. And so they would go into the synagogues and read out to the people so that they got God's word. Well, the scribes had failed to fulfill their responsibility. The Pharisees failed to do what they had set out to do of knowing and looking for and being prepared for the Messiah. And so Jesus turns his attention from those individuals now to his disciples, now to the ones who are following him. And the next series that we're going to be kind of looking through, series of interactions and episodes and things that go on, are really focused on Jesus and his interactions with his disciples, his teaching and training of them instead of these interactions with the Pharisees. Now, that doesn't mean that as you read through, you're not going to see the Pharisees come up. They're going to keep coming up. But the focus of Mark, as he records these, shifts from those interactions in the synagogues with the religious leaders, focused on that, now is shifting to by the sea, we're going to see come up multiple times, or as he was traveling, so the, the regular interactions as Jesus is out and about and the things that he's doing, and it's going to focus on his disciples instead of those religious leaders. So, like I said, this is a transitional point in the account of Jesus and what's going on. As is my normal custom, we are going to go ahead and read uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. <clears throat> and then we're going to start digging in and seeing uh, what Mark has recorded for us. So starting off in verse 7, it says, And Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude heard of all that he was doing, and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him, because the multitude, because of the multitude, in order that he might not, that they might not crowd him, for he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits beheld him. They would fall down before him and cry out, saying, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. 
And he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the names (coughs) Bonegers, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So these are the twelve disciples. These are the ones that, that he sends out. And prior to that, he had been teaching, as was his normal custom. We've seen over and over and over again that that's what Jesus does. He is regularly going out and teaching and talking to people and telling them about the gospel, the good news of God. That's what we started off with all the way back in chapter 1, verse 15. That was his plan. That was his goal. That's what he was always doing. Here, like I said, we see a transition that occurs. It says that Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. <clears throat> this, this idea of withdrawing, it's not that he's, he is leaving and going away and hiding as much as that's just where he's going. He's making this change and he's going out to a different place. Um, This idea of the sea is the Sea of Galilee. If you recall, when we first started, I put up a map to kind of give us an area and a a recognition, and hopefully you still have that picture in mind of the different areas that that they're dealing with, because that's going to come up here in just a little bit as pretty important. But he goes down to the area of the sea. It's not being specific and telling us um, exactly where, just part of the Sea of Galilee. But why does he go there? What is his, his purpose? What is his focus? It says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. So he's, he's wanting to teach. He's wanting to train. And he's got these individuals who are following him. Now, obviously, the question then comes up. I've already used the word multiple times. What is a disciple? I think as we get into this section, we've got to have a good understanding and a good grasp on this term, disciple. Because it's going to come up quite a bit. And ultimately, we're going to find it applied to the twelve, but the word itself, the general term, what does it mean? A learner? I I saw you mouthing it. You said learner? A a student? I heard one more. A follower. Okay, those those are all very, very accurate. It is someone who learns, um, but it's more than just like this basic idea of someone who shows up at class and sits through the class and then leaves. Those are students, technically, but they're not always actively trying to learn. If you think back to your school days, were you there with this hunger and thirst for knowledge, or were you there because your parents told you you had to go, or because you would get in trouble if you didn't go? I'm seeing a lot of nods. You, you guys know how that works. Well, this idea of disciple... Yes, it, is, it does mean learner, but specifically it means someone that follows or someone that imitates another. So it, it contains in it the idea of more than just someone who showed up and heard the lecture, but someone who is wanting to learn and seeking to understand and seeking to emulate the individual that's teaching them. They want to be copiers. They want to be like their teacher. <clears throat> Jesus had a lot of followers. But as you go through the gospel accounts, you're going to find that as challenges grow, 
more and more of them fall away. They go away from him. They stop following him because it gets difficult. It gets challenging. They don't necessarily want to be followers. Now, they may, they may travel around and follow him in places, but they're not those learners who want to be with him, who want to be like him. Ultimately, we actually have seen that happening ever since. Even today, there are people who will say, yeah, I, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, I want to... And they'll show up to church for a little bit, and then they'll learn a little bit, and then they fall away. And they don't actually want to be disciples. They don't want to be intimate followers and imitators of who Christ is. One of the lessons that Jesus is going to talk about here coming up shortly actually deals with that very idea. that The word's going to go out, and people will hear it, and then how do they respond to it? And what impact does that make? This, this idea of a disciple really does take, uh, deserve a uh, deeper look. See, we are called to be disciples. We are called to imitate Christ. We are called to be like him. And so, I guess the question that comes to my mind is, how well are we doing that? One of the things that I really enjoy about the men's discipleship on Sunday evenings is we get together and we dig into God's Word and we want to learn. And sometimes we have some rather heated type discussions, perhaps, um, and yet the goal is not to be right individually, but to be right according to what Scripture says. And so it's an opportunity where we challenge one another and we encourage one another and we dig deeper into God's Word. I want to encourage you, if you don't have something like that. And there, there's ladies' Bible studies. There's men's discipleship. There are other Bible studies that are happening. And if you're not involved in one, you ought to find one. Or start one. That would be great. In which we are able to learn more about and begin to follow in the footsteps of Christ more and more. <clears throat> one of my favorite verses uh, comes out of Second Timothy chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2 says... Thou therefore, my son, I learned it in the old King James, so it stuck that, sticks that way. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We get looking at this idea of disciples, and Jesus is gathering a group of individuals who are going to follow him. But his goal, we're going to find out, is not just that they hang out with him, but that they go out and proclaim him, that they teach others also, and that they teach others who will be able to teach an additional layer. So let me ask you, I know obviously we are just getting started, and normally I save these so what's till the end, but let me ask you, as we look at and dig into this idea of disciples, who are you discipling? Who are you teaching also? And sometimes people look at, at themselves and think, well, I, I don't know the Bible. I mean, I don't understand all of it. I haven't figured it out. It doesn't say anything about that. The things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men. Whatever it is that you know, are you teaching someone else? See, uh, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20 says, As you go, go therefore and make disciples. It's not a request. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. We are to be making disciples. And maybe we don't know everything. Well, we're going to find out from these guys, they mess up a lot. They don't get it all right every time. And yet, God said, I want you to serve me as my followers, as my imitators. And God said the same thing to us. 
We are to be followers and imitators of him and be making disciples of others. We're going to see more about the 12 and, and how this phrase is applied to them. But ultimately, when he starts out, he goes up with his disciples, and that's a, a large group, a large number of individuals. Eventually, that term, disciple, is going to be used by Mark to really focus in and mainly apply to those 12. But in general, it's all the learners, all the followers, and there has become a very large group of disciples that are going with him. Um, in fact, it says that there's a great multitude from Galilee that followed, and also Judea. Now, if we, if we start going through these, we're going to find out um, a lot of different locations, and we're going we're to take a moment to look at those. But I do want to point out, there is a little bit of a textual variant in this. If you study Greek and you start looking at the way that that all fits together, you're going to find out that there is some argument about, okay, what exactly does this say? But I, I don't mind pointing out or recognizing there are textual variances. There are things where the scholars are looking at the, the manuscripts and trying to understand, okay, what did Mark originally write? And this is a, a good example. It causes a little bit of confusion, but it doesn't make any issue to what it says. And that's the key to understand when we, when we deal with this idea of textual variances. There are certain ones in which, you know, scribes were writing and they didn't dot all their I's or cross all their T's. It happens. And yet, it makes no difference to the meaning of the passage. Ultimately, this one comes down to a question of, did this great multitude follow him from all the places as he withdrew from, to the sea? Or did they hear about it after he had withdrawn, and then they come. Well, that really isn't the focus of what Mark is talking about anyway. What Mark is focused on is this vast major group, this large company that is following Jesus. We've already seen that they have been following him. We're going to continue to see that they continue to follow him. And so this little variation, it's, it's a little word that's altered in it, uh, as to whether or not they were following and then continued to follow, or they heard about this group, and it's just the group from Galilee that's following him up there, and then others continue to, to add to that group, doesn't really matter. In, in either case, no matter how that little variant is, uh, is figured out and applied, it doesn't change the focus or the meaning of what Mark is recording for us, this focus on uh, this vastness of a multitude that has been and will continue to follow Jesus. As we, as we get into these specific locations that are mentioned, Galilee is the first one. We already know that the Sea of Galilee is right there in the northern part of Israel, and Galilee refers to the area that surrounds it. But then it also mentions from Judea. Who, who remembers where Judea is? Hmm? It's south. It's the area that's the main focus of Israel, um, if you recall, I'm, I'm going to turn around just because if I'm pointing this way, I get my lefts and rights and east and west wrong. But if you recall, the Sea of Galilee is up here. There's the Jordan River and then the Dead Sea. And on this side is what's normally recognized, thank you, is normally recognized as Israel. But there is Galilee in the north, Samaria in between, and Judea down below. And so there's a group that has traveled this, this distance to come see and to come hear about and learn about. But it's not just from Judea. It's also, verse 8, from Jerusalem, 
Well, what's Jerusalem? No. What'd you say? It's the capital. It is the capital of Israel. This is where all the bigwigs are from. This is where the religious leaders have been coming from. This is a, the major focal point. It's also where the temple is, where the primary focus of learning about and interacting with God was supposed to take place. It, Jerusalem is the central focus, and people are coming from there and from Judea. They're coming from both of those areas in the south. Where else does it say that they're coming from? From... Well, there's one more before that. A, a place called Inumia. Does anybody know where that is? Maybe, maybe you did a little bit of pre-study or started looking. I saw your hand, Paul. Uh, you can raise it higher and speak a little bit louder here in a moment. But does anybody know who Inumia is? Go ahead, Paul. I, I saw you raising your hand. I'll point you out. Okay. It's an area to the southeast of the Dead Sea. So you remember the, the map. Um, there's the... the River Jordan, and then the Dead Sea, this is the area south, even further than Judea. And people had been coming from there. Now, Edomia, it's, a, it's an unusual word. It's an unusual place. Um, <clears throat> Edomia is only used here. It is a Latinized word for Edom. And so it's the, the people of Edom. Does anybody remember who Edom is? E Esau. It's the descendants of Esau. So Jacob and Esau were twins. They were brothers. And God chose Jacob and was using him as part of the line for Israel. And Esau was his brother who didn't really do things very well. There's a big story. There's a lot that goes on there. I don't want to dig too deep into it right now. But Edomia is the people of Esau. They had often had differences and fights. But they also, at times, got together, and they would actually um, end up fighting against Rome together as well. Additionally, it is worth pointing out that Herod, the king when Jesus was born, he was from Edom. He was an Edomite, or from this, this area of Edomia. And so people are coming not just from Galilee, not just close by, but also Jerusalem and Judea. Well, that makes sense because that's, that's Israel. They're looking for their Messiah. That, that would be reasonable. And yet even further away, we see them coming from out of the country, from Esau's descendants, from this, this area of Edom. <clears throat> the next one that's mentioned uh, was pointed out is beyond the Jordan. Well, what does that mean? Anybody, anybody know where that is? Do what? Okay, Ammonites. Out in the desert. It's the area to the east of the Jordan River. So we're talking about Galilee's in the north, Dead Sea's in the, in the south. So far we've kind of stayed to the Mediterranean side of that. And yet here we're seeing to the opposite side of the Jordan River. And it's a, it's a nondescript, nonspecific area um, but it is a large area. It includes areas from Perea in the south all the way to the Decapolis in the north, which is Decapolis mean, just means ten cities. There's a bunch of, of cities in that area. It's a large geographical area um, from which people were coming to follow Jesus, to learn from him, to hear his teachings, to get to know what he was all about. 
The next one that's mentioned, though, I think is, is really fascinating. From the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. Does anybody know where that is? Northwest. Northwest. All right. So just from a directional standpoint, you'll realize we started with uh, from Galilee and went all the way south and all the way around. So the first thing that Mark has done is said, from this great big area, people have been coming. But the people across the Jordan and the people in Judea and Jerusalem, those are all Israelites, mainly. The people in, in Edom, well, they're relatives of, they're, they're connected. I mean, but who's Tyre and Sidon? They are a separate nation, a completely different group. This is two of their major cities um, in Lebanon area. And if you recall your Old Testament, this is who Solomon would send to to get the cedars of Lebanon. This is, this is outsiders. This is a completely different nation. And yet people are coming from there. Uh, Tyre and Sidon is also kind of a major trading uh, place. <clears throat> and there are a lot of, lot of individuals there. Uh, but you'll notice it also uses the word from the vicinity. Uh, peri is the, the Greek. It means around. So it's not just that people came from those cities, but from that whole area. And it's, it's creating this picture of a, a large, uh, nondescript, nonspecific place where people are coming from, like I said, all around Israel. Not just the ones that you would expect, not just the ones who are close by, but Mark is letting it be known his influence is going far and wide. People all over the place are not only hearing about, but starting to follow. And they're coming and they're gathering because they want to hear. Now, this is, is really cool given what we just dealt with. He's been talking about the religious leaders. The ones who decide that they hate Jesus. They want nothing to do with him because he's taking away their power. He's taking away their influence. He's drawing people from them and they're following Jesus instead. We see this massive group, but they're going to Jesus. They're wanting to learn of him. And the, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they want to kill Jesus. They want to wipe him out. They want to get rid of him. And so Mark is setting up this, this major difference between the two. Now, in Sunday school, we actually talked about how that God had put Israel in a particular place so that all the world would come to them and be able to learn of who he is and what's going on. And yet, that's not what the religious leaders were all about. That's not what their focus was. That's not what the scribes were doing, nor the Pharisees. But Jesus is gathering these, these people, these crowds, to come hear of him and find out who he is and what he's doing. This crowd got to be so massive. Um, the, the words used, a great number, a great multitude. Um, in other places, we're going to find out that there are times in which he preaches to over 5,000 men, which means there's probably 10 plus thousand people there. Huge crowds. We're not talking, you know, onesie twosies or small amounts. We're talking a massive crowd. And Mark is letting it be known, this is a crowd from all over the place that is flocking to hear him. It got so bad, so much, that they were crowding in on him. And that's what this next section talks about. Um, in verse 9, he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude in order that they might not crowd him. 
The idea here that that second crowd that they might not crowd him is dealing with like pressing grapes or smashing together. He's saying, hey, we've, we've got to do something. This crowd, this group is so big that it's starting to press in on us. And we're going to find out a little bit more why here in just a moment. But they are, they are flocking to Jesus and they want to be close to him to the point that it's, it's kind of getting tight and uncomfortable because they're all smashing together. Uh, and so he takes just some practical um, steps to be able to avoid that. <clears throat> In this, this crown, he sets up a way to avoid it being an issue. Uh, he tells his disciples to have a boat standing ready. Now, if you recall from what we've already studied, some of these disciples, they were fishermen. They had boats. They knew how to handle them and what to do with them. So it seems like they just got one of those boats, brought it close by, and he was able to be ready to get on that to avoid as we go through the rest of the book of Mark and other accounts of Jesus' teaching, we're going to find that he actually stands on the boat at times and it creates this platform where he's able to preach and to proclaim and let people know what's going on and the people are kind of gathered on the seashore. And so it has a very practical, uh, very basic type of a, a setup. It does a little bit of crowd control. It also gives him a platform and a place from which to teach uh, so that he can be heard by the audience. In this one specifically, though, we find that the crowd is coming and packing so close and so tight because of verse 10. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. So they were getting so close and so tight, they were pressing and getting packed in there to the point that it was causing problems. And so Jesus takes this practical step of having a boat there. There's, there's nothing, you know, crazy about that. He just says, hey, let's, let's do this so that I won't be crushed, so that I'll be able to continue to teach and interact. Now, all of these people had been coming from far and wide because they'd heard of the miracles that he'd been doing. They'd heard of the healing that he was, he was affecting, and they wanted to gather so that they could touch him now, there's, there's a lot of discussion about, okay, why, why would they want to touch him? Well, we're going to find out later in one of the accounts that takes place that a woman s- sneaks up behind him and just barely touches the robe and is healed from a, a disease, from a problem that had afflicted her for years, that she had spent all of her money and resources on trying to find a cure, and yet she was able to touch that. Now, there, there are some ideas that, you know, in the, in the ancient world that people thought there was a mystical power of touching, you know, some famous leader or something like that. And so in that account, Jesus actually turns around and addresses it and says, your faith is what has healed you. It's not that he just, just this mystical thing of touching the garment, but the faith in who Christ is, that recognition that he is God himself. That is what uh, brought about the healing. But that's why the crowd is gathering to press in so tight to make this difficult um, on him. And so the use of a a boat as a speaking platform, like I said, is going to come up at other places, um, but it is just a a way to handle some of the crowd control as well. We get to verse 11 then, and it says, Whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they would fall down before him, crying out, saying, you are the Son of God. 
Now, I, I find this one fascinating. I, I know I say that a lot. I, I talk about different passages that are... I find that one fascinating. Well, you ought to be fascinated as you dig through Scripture, as you come to understand and you learn more. It, it ought to you know, catch your attention and, and uh, be fascinating to you as well. This one in particular, though, it doesn't say when a possessed person saw him, they fell down. It says that when the unclean spirits, when the demons saw him, they fell down. Now, obviously, it, it makes sense that they were possessing individuals and that, you know, that that was part of what they were doing. But it also emphasizes the fact that these demons know who Jesus is and that they are the ones who are taking that action. Mark's making it clear that it's not the demon-possessed individual, but the demon itself, that it, it can't do anything but bow down before Christ. We've already established, as we've been going through, Jesus is God. And these demons, they recognize that. To the point that they cry out, you are the Son of God. Which then brings up the next verse as kind of a question. Well, why then would Jesus not want them to make him known? I mean, that's what he's been doing. He's been going around proclaiming and making himself known. He's been doing all of these healings. He's been showing and interacting with the religious leaders and making it very, very obvious that he is God, that he is the one who is in control, that he is the authority, the Messiah, who was promised throughout the Old Testament. So why does he not want them doing this? Well, I think the, the reason primarily deals with that they were not the right ones to make that proclamation. Jesus had a plan. He had a method. And he wanted it done his way. And yes, Jesus is letting it be known who he is. We are about to get into a section that talks about him getting ready to send out his disciples to make that proclamation. But he wants it done his way. In the right time, through the right process. And so Jesus' authority is clearly seen in the fact that they fall down. But it's also displayed in the command that he gives to them. and says, you are not the ones who are going to be my messengers. You are the demons. You are the ones who are against what I'm about and what I'm doing. I have my, my way, my method, and that's how it's going to be done. And the authority that Jesus has is clearly displayed through both of these. At this point, I, I kind of expect that a lot of people already know who he is. That's why these great massive crowds are coming. And so to tell them not to make him known is not so much to hide who he is, but to do it in the right way, in the way that it's supposed to be done. So that was the section that I was supposed to get to last week, and you might recognize and see why we didn't have time to be able to deal with that. Now let's move on into the next block in which Jesus goes up onto a mountain. Now, <clears throat> there is a, a transition point here or a, a shift that Mark lets be known. He's not making this huge shift. It's not like, a, a okay, all of that happened and then we're done and we're doing something else. But there is a, a change of location and a change of, of uh, what's happening. And so there is a little bit of a, a shift. It says that Jesus went up on the mountain. Now, it doesn't really tell us which one. And if you've got one of those maps or you've looked at it at all, kind of all around to the northwest of Galilee is a lot of hill country. And so which particular mountain he went to, 
Mark doesn't record for us. He doesn't tell us. Within just a few miles, though, there are a bunch of different mountains that he could have gone to. Just like from here, we could get up to Plaina Peak very easily, but you could also go up to Sisters or Brother. Or, I mean, all of these mountains around, that's the same idea of what's, what's here. He went up on one of them. Um, and he, he goes up there, and Mark doesn't really tell us why or what's going on. Um, Mark has some interesting things going on in this section. He uses a phrasing that's, that's a bit odd. Up to this point, he has, he has used a lot of imperfects, which is like a continuous thing. This is what he's always doing. He's normally teaching. He's normally casting out. He's normally healing. It's a regular, constant thing. This one shifts a little bit and is in the present tense and so focuses on one specific event, one specific time that he went up on the mountain to do this. But that idea of the imperfect is going to come up some more. Um, but the point is that he, he went up and he summoned those that he himself wanted. He had a plan. He went up intending to call certain ones. Now, this one, uh, Mark doesn't record for us why he went on to the mountain. We, we don't know from Mark. Luke, however, does fill in some of those gaps. And, and normally I, don't, I try not to shift between the Gospels because each Gospel is telling its account for a particular reason and, and I don't want to get us uh, missing what Mark is trying to, to tell us in this. But in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, we see the same situation, the same things going on, and it records that he went up on a mountain, uh, but Luke includes the information that Jesus had gone out the night before to pray. And he had spent the whole night up there in prayer. And then he summons these individuals. So Mark, is, like I said, Mark is going really fast and he's, he's giving us the highlights and the major important information that we need. He doesn't record that. But Luke kind of fills in that gap. And we understand Jesus didn't go up there uh, not knowing for sure. Or he, he didn't start summoning people not knowing for sure who he's going to call as his disciples. He has just spent the entire night in prayer. We can assume getting ready for this. And then he calls, he, he summons those that he wanted. He had a selected individuals that he wanted something more from. Now, obviously, he wanted everyone to follow him. He wanted to proclaim the gospel to everyone. God still wants everyone to know the good news of who Jesus is. But he selects a certain few for certain tasks. And that's what he's getting ready to do. He's going to gather these particular 12. <clears throat> now, we, we also here run into another of those little textual variances that I mentioned. Um, some translations are going to say uh, he appointed the 12 and others, uh, other translations are going to say he appointed the 12 and called them apostles. Now, what does apostle mean? Does anybody remember just the term itself, what it means? Hmm? Both of those. One who is sent, one who is a messenger. Someone who is sent with a message to tell. Well, we're going to find out that's exactly what it he is doing. And he even says that they are, are going to be assigned as apostles in a noun form, whereas here it's, that, that variant kind of has a little bit of a, a harmonization aspect where other passages clearly say he appointed the twelve and called them apostles. Mark 
in particular does not use that one, though sometimes it is added into some of those translations to be able to, to explain it. But again, this variance, this difference makes no difference. It doesn't matter whether he specifically called them apostles in this one or not, because what they're doing is being sent ones with a message. They are being apostles. So um, I, I think that that was added later, but it doesn't affect the, the message or what Mark is expressing to us. You know, the term itself simply means a sent one, and that's what he is getting ready to appoint. So it says, he went up on the mountain, he summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. I think that's a fascinating addition to include in there. I mean, obviously, he calls them and they come. And yet, how often does the message go out and people ignore it and they don't come? They don't accept the call that Jesus is giving. Well, these 12, these disciples, they did. They obeyed. They came to him. And it says uh, in verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the 12, and then it lists out their names. <clears throat> what, are the, what are the reasons that he gives for appointing these 12? What are they supposed to do? Preach and cast out demons. There's one more that it says. So that they might be with him. There, there are, are three things going on. Um, the first one we'll dig into, and then the next two are connected. Uh, the, the preach and, and cast out demons are connected, and we'll talk about those in a moment. But that first one is so that they might be with him. As you go through Scripture, there's this, this idea that keeps coming up throughout all of the Bible of presence, of being together, of being with God, of being with Jesus. Um, there's, there's a lot in that idea of being with him. There's an idea of, of encouragement, of learning, of fellowship, of mutual care for one another. Uh, the theme comes throughout, like I said, the entire Bible. There are times in which David expresses his greatest desire is to be in the presence of God, to be in his house, to spend time with him. That's his greatest desire. You know, I, I personally greatly appreciate the fact that we have technology, that we're able to broadcast on YouTube, and that people who aren't able to join us are able to be a part of and learn some of those things. But there's this idea within Scripture of face-to-face -face interactions, of presence that is so valuable, and that I, I think our culture and our society is, is kind of moving away from. And so I, I would encourage you, as you have opportunities with fellow believers, spend time together with them. Get to know them. Get to being able to encourage them and disciple them and be discipled by them. That's a main idea of what Jesus is wanting. He appoints these 12 and, and assigns them that task of being with him. And they're going to follow him. They're going to learn from him. They're going to um, be the main focus of the rest of what's taking place as we go through um, the book of Mark. We're going to see that, that term, his disciples, is applied specifically to these 12 pretty much through the rest of this. Yes, there are other people who follow him. There are some other disciples. But their main focus of these 12 is to be in his presence, constantly learning from him, constantly growing in him, so that 
they can do the next section so that he could send them out to preach. Now, that, that word preach is simply to proclaim, to let it be known, to broadcast this message so that everyone will hear who it is. Um, just being in his presence was important, but they weren't there just to hang out on a mountaintop. You know, I, I mentioned it's great that people gather together and that we can sing praises to God and that we can do all of these things. And over the last few years ago, that was kind of a problem. And, and people are realizing how much of a problem that was. This idea of togetherness is very, very important. But if all you do is show up on a Sunday and sit together and sing together and don't let that have any impact on what you do beyond these walls, that's a problem. That's not what God called these 12 for. That's not what God has called us for. So he called them so that he could send them out to preach, to let it be known. They were being appointed as apostles. Like I said, that though that word may not have been used earlier, it is actually used here. He was appointing them as his messengers, as his uh, representatives to go out. Namely, they were to make the proclamation of the same message that he had been giving starting back in chapter 1, verse 15. See, they were going out not on their own, not for themselves, but as representatives of Jesus. And they were to give his same message, and they were being given his authority as well. It says that, that he appointed them um, so that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. Later on, we're going to find out that he sends them and they leave and they go out and they cast out demons and they heal and they do the things that Jesus had been doing. And they don't necessarily do it perfectly well. There's going to be some issues along the way. But that's why he was calling them. That's why he was appointing them so that they would go out as his representatives into the world around. Now, Mark's going to go on and list these 12 um, and that list is going to be, you're going to actually see it both here and in the Gospels of Luke and of Matthew. And then you're go also going to see most of the list repeated again when you get to the book of Acts. These 12 become really the ones that he uses as the foundation of the church, as the starting for what he's getting ready to do with this church age. Um, <clears throat> Mark is going to give the list. Those other two in Luke 6 and in Matthew 10 um, have the same people, but there are a few variations in how they're recorded. Uh, for one thing, the order is adjusted in a couple of them. Mark is going to list Peter uh, separate from his brother Andrew, whereas in the others it'll say Peter and Andrew. But in, in Mark, he says he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, John, and then eventually it's going to get to his brother Andrew. So Mark separates them, though we've already found that they are brothers from an earlier passage in Mark. Um, <clears throat> likely, he's doing this so that he can draw attention to the fact that the first three become the inner circle. And we're going to see those three. Peter, James, and John are going to come up over and over again. And we're going to find out a lot about them. And we're going to see them play major role in what Jesus is doing. Um, and so it's, it's likely that he has the order just a little bit different in order to put that focus on those three, that inner circle. Those three would also be the ones that most people would be most familiar with. 
And so as the Gospel of Mark is being read to folks, they're going to recognize, oh yeah, Peter and James and John, and, and then go into all of these others who were most likely very well known to them at that time as well. Now it does say uh, that Peter is renamed, or well, that Simon is renamed as Peter. Um, scripture doesn't really tell us the full reason for that. There's a lot of, of supposition, there's a lot of reasonable ideas, but it doesn't have an episode in which it says, this is what happened when Jesus started calling Peter, Peter instead of, Jesus, or instead of Simon. It's likely associated with what happens in Matthew chapter 16, um, but not necessarily. Now, on some of the others, we're going to find a few differences in names between what Mark says, what Luke, or what Matthew say, and oftentimes those are based more on language differences or the fact that people had multiple names. Just like today, uh, I am Isaac Jack, and sometimes people call me Jack. When I was in the army, that's what I was always referred to. Sometimes it's because Jack is here as well and they get confused, but that's beside the point. Um, I have two names. Most people have two names. And so that happens uh, as well during some of this. Also, there is um, family connections that are listed. Sometimes there's a language difference, speaking Greek or Hebrew. Sometimes it's family connections referring to a father or a, um, you know, a, their lineage or even where they're from is sometimes used. We'll see that here in a moment. Um, <clears throat> but the fact that there, there are a few different names isn't really a big deal. It's the same 12 individuals in all three of these lists. Um, like I said, the, the likelihood is that Peter gets his name in connection with what happens in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to establish my church. Um, there's a whole lot going on there. I'm not going to preach Matthew 16 at the moment, but that's, that's possible where Simon begins being named Peter and why that's going on. But uh, other than that, there's not really a specific time that is explained with it. The next ones, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are given another name here. And it's uh, Bonagas. Is I, I had to look up how to pronounce it, and I still messed it up when I was reading through it. But Bonagas is what this term is, and it means sons of thunder. And this is where they're called it. We don't know why. We don't necessarily have an explanation of, of why that's what they were called. This is just the nicknames. Now, it's possible that Jesus gives these guys nicknames in order to show, or that, that Mark is recording these nicknames in order to show the closeness and the, the friendship that they had. And that, you know, Jesus was calling them by a, a familiar name because they were friends, because they knew each other. They want, walked together and spent so much time together. It's also possible that it's because of certain events and certain things that happen. There's, there's some supposition that they were called this because of their, their um, thundery, fast-acting type of an attitudes. Or th There's all kinds of different ideas out there. You're welcome to read and research some of those, but we aren't specifically told why he gives them this name, but that's simply what the name is, Sons of Thunder. <clears throat> It then goes on and digs into several people that we don't see nearly as much. Those first three are very, very well known. They are the most known of the disciples that are constantly 
uh, in focus as you go through the Gospels. The rest of these, they're going to come up once or twice, maybe a few times. They'll be in the lists, but we don't have nearly as much recorded on them. Um, in the in the supplemental, I encourage you to do a little bit of research and see what you can find out about some of these. There's a lot of tradition, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with tradition, but tradition is not the same as what the Bible records. What the Bible says is true and accurate. God breathed it. It's inspired. We know that it's right. There's a lot of tradition about these disciples, where they come from, what they're about, all of that type of stuff. It's interesting, but it's not as guaranteed fact as what comes directly from Scripture. So I'm not going to delve into a lot of those traditions. Uh, Though there are some interesting stories and some cool backgrounds and whatnot, I'm not going to delve into them right now. Um, This is the only time that Philip is going to be named in the entire book of Mark. Um, And really, he only gets attention in the Gospel of John. That's the only one that's going to tell us anything more about Philip. So we've got uh, Peter, James, John, and then Peter's brother, Andrew. And then Philip shows up. And we don't really know much more about him other than, like I said, from the Gospel of John. The next one mentioned is Bartholomew. Um, Bartholomew is actually a title, meaning son of Ptolemy. Um, We don't necessarily know what his first name is. The, the title, Bar, is a Hebrew title, meaning son of, and then the rest of his name is his, his father. That's the, the name itself. There are some who think that he is the same person as Nathaniel, as is recorded in some of the other Gospels. Um, and there is some indication of that in John chapter 1, verse 45, as well as at the end of the Gospel of John, Nathan is one of the ones who goes out with Jesus' disciples, with Peter and and some of those who go fishing after Jesus is resurrected. They're not real sure what to do. They go out fishing. Uh, Nathaniel is one of those that goes with them, and they, as a group, are referred to as Jesus' disciples. So whether that means he is Bartholomew or not, um, there's some debate. If it was majorly important, God would tell us straight out. It's not. Um, So we have here Bartholomew uh, and Matthew. Matthew, we have already seen earlier, was named as Levi. And Mark doesn't draw the connection between Levi and Matthew. The other Gospels do, however. And so we know that Levi is Matthew um, and is one of the disciples. Uh, After Matthew comes Thomas. Um, Thomas is sometimes referred to as Didymus which means the twin in the other Gospels, um, he is most well known as the doubter, doubting Thomas. You've probably heard the story. He's an interesting one that comes up a lot. And I don't, I don't want to take a ton of time right now, but I would encourage you, go back to that story, read through what happens, and recognize we shouldn't look down on Thomas. Just because he had some questions and he was asking these, He showed up, and he was looking for the answers, and he wanted to know. And so I I personally think that Thomas gives us a very good example of an individual who hears about Jesus and maybe has some questions, and they're not real sure, and they're trying to get it figured out, and they don't know what's going on, and yet Jesus reveals himself to him and says, Hey, 
You were doubting. But there are coming those who aren't going to see me. They're not going to get to put their fingers in the, the wounds or anything like that. And their faith is going to be massive and awesome. So uh, I think Thomas is worth taking another look at. After him comes James. Um, sometimes he is called the lesser or the younger. He's going to come up again in Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Um, that could refer to he might be small in stature, that he is the shorter. It could also mean that he is the younger, younger brother. Um, we're not positive necessarily, but he is James, differentiated from James and John as James the Lesser. Uh, he is the son of Alphaeus, which Mark doesn't really point out, but you'll recall Levi is the son of Alphaeus. So most likely Matthew and um, James are brothers, that they are both uh, sons of Alphaeus, that they are brothers, which would mean that there are three sets of brothers included in these 12 disciples. Um, the next one listed is Thaddeus. Uh, in the other ones, other accounts, he's referred to as Judas. Um, personally, I suspect that he didn't want to go by the name of Judas because of the next guy that we're going to talk about. We don't, or not in the next one, but one of the later ones. We don't necessarily know why he's called Thaddeus in some and Judas in others. It's not a big deal, um, but it is the same individual. After that, we have Simon the Zealot. Um, he is differentiated. Every time that you come across this Simon, he's differentiated from Simon Peter. And so we, we draw a, a distinction. He is referred to as the zealot. That term zealot could refer to a religious fervor or it could refer to a political fervor. Um, there were the zealots who were kind of a political party and they wanted to get after the, the Roman Empire. And there were others who were zealous for their faith. We think of Paul, the apostle. He was zealous for Judaism. We aren't told which one these, this is. And it's possible that Simon was both. That he was zealous both for his Jewish faith and for his Jewish nationality. We don't know. We just know that he is referred to as Simon the Zealot. After that comes Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And pretty much always he is pointed out as the betrayer. Uh, the name Iscariot is a family name. Uh, you can find it again in John chapter 6, verse 71. It likely refers to his hometown in Judea. Um, his, his father is also called Iscariot. And so uh, Judas is likely from this hometown. If that's the case, he's the only one that's listed as specified coming from Judea instead of the area of Galilee. I mentioned that there were three sets of brothers. Those all come from that Galilea area, uh, whereas Judas is the only one specifically named as coming from somewhere not in Galilee. Now, there has been a lot of, of discussion and, and ink spilled about why did he choose 12. Likely, it is associated with the 12 tribes of Israel. And what Jesus is doing is setting up this transition from the Old Testament focus on the 12 tribes and God as their head to now having his 12 apostles, his 12 sent ones, his disciples, who are his followers, who are connected with him. It is significant that Jesus does not list himself as part of this group. He is over and above it. 
just like God of the Old Testament, just like Yahweh was over and above, was calling his chosen nation, Israel, together, divided them into the 12 tribes so that they could spread the message that God wanted spread to the whole world. So also here, Jesus is calling his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples, his, these 12 individuals from diverse background, from all kinds of, of history, some of which we know, some of which we don't, And he's giving them the same mission, the same goal. Now, some of them are going to be really, really famous. And we're going to know all about them. And Peter, in particular, becomes really the spokesman. And he's going to come up a lot. And he has some really great interactions and examples. And some of them we're going to hear just here. We're not going to know anything else about them. Which kind of brings us to my final so what, my final takeaway. I said before, you know, obviously we ought to be good disciples. We ought to be learning. We ought to be following. Yes, ma'am. Because Mark's not one of these selected 12 disciples. Mark is somebody else. He, Mark follows Peter and Paul around, but he's not a disciple, or he's not an apostle. He is someone else. Um, <clears throat> likely he is a young man, who wasn't ready to be part of that. We don't know that for sure. But he does come up as going on some of the trips with the Apostle Paul later. And then historically we find that uh, Mark followed Peter around. And likely what's happening with the the book of Mark is he's writing down the messages, the, the sermons, as Peter and Paul have gone about proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is. Mark writes those down as a scribe. And then it gets to a point where God says, hey, I want you to write that all out as a letter so that my people will know who I am, so that my people will get a full account of the time when Jesus was on the earth. But no, Mark was not one of the the 12. He was another follower, which really connects in with where I was going and what what we're looking at here. I, I had already mentioned we need to be disciples. We need to be making disciples and teaching and training others. But when we see this list of 12, some of them become famous, well-known. Others kind of fade away, and we don't see much at all about them. But Jesus is the one who picked them out, selected them, intentionally wanted these individuals to be with him, to learn of him, to follow him, and to go out and spread that far and wide. And then he uses other individuals who are around there and uses them to record some of that and to carry the message on. And just like I quoted um, 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 earlier, to take those things and tell them to others who will be able to teach others also. Mark is a great example of that. He heard the message from Peter and from Paul, and he spread it and continued it on. And God used him in great ways as well. So I guess my, my final takeaway for you to consider, you may not be a Peter or James or a John, that inner circle that, that become the focus of so many accounts and things that are going on, but each of us needs to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, who is willing to go and make that proclamation and let it be known, and who wants to draw closer and learn more and serve better the amazing Jesus, Messiah, God himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the record that Mark gives us. 
Lord, thank you for these men that you chose, you selected them because you wanted them to be with you and to go out and proclaim the gospel. Lord, thank you that you have called each of us to learn of you, to draw closer to you, and to tell others. Help us to be faithful. Lord, we can't do it in our own strength and in our own abilities. So Lord, help us to serve you well, to tell others of all that you have done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are going to sing together uh, just that that first one of Glorify Thy Name. Um, Father, we love you. We worship and adore you. dismissed. Thank you for joining us.